In the summer of 1976, residents of a quiet working-class neighborhood in Niagara Falls, New York, noticed that something was wrong. Pools of shimmering chemicals bubbled up in their backyards, the local school, and the public playground. Noxious fumes could be smelled in dozens of basements, and in some, toxic sludge began to leak through the walls and foam up on the floor. When they had moved in, nobody had told them that their little suburban community was built directly on top of 20,000 tons of some of the deadliest chemicals ever created by man. The ensuing very public environmental disaster and human suffering drew headlines across the country and eventually helped force the administration of Jimmy Carter to pass legislation known as the Comprehensive Environmental Response, Compensation, and Liability Act, also known as the Superfund Act. Today, I want to talk a little bit about the history of Love Canal, how it came to be, and how its shadow is still with us today. Thanks for tuning in this week. You're listening to Hidden History. I'm Ellis Tucci, and this is episode 127, Love Canal. Hidden History is always available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. If you like this episode, then consider subscribing or sharing with a friend. So, in order to talk about this disaster in the 1970s and 80s, we have to set the scene by going back almost a hundred years prior to the early 1890s. In the winter of 1892, a man named William T. Love arrived in Niagara Falls. He had emerged seemingly out of the ether, with multiple conflicting sources about his age, place of birth, and backstory. Love had been attracted to Niagara Falls for a reason, industry. The falls themselves had been used to generate mechanical power since the 1700s, and had since become home to a significant number of mills of various sorts. However, the ongoing Second Industrial Revolution was changing things for Niagara Falls, and William Love saw hydroelectric power as the key to the city's future. Well, not the existing city. You see, Love had come to Niagara Falls to build a new city. The creatively named Model City was to be a utopian planned community driven to the very heights of prosperity by reliance on cheap, abundant hydroelectric power, supplied, conveniently, by a seven-mile canal that would be dug to channel water around the falls and into Lake Ontario. Love shopped around his vision for a new shining industrial city and was met with great success. He received hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of dollars in investment, got extensive positive coverage in the local press, and was granted broad powers by the state of New York to seize and consolidate land, which eventually brought the area under his control to over 30,000 acres. Love himself claimed that 200,000 people would come to inhabit Model City by the 1910s. One of his biggest backers, New York Governor Roswell Flower, said that two million would eventually come to call the city home. 
the groundbreaking ceremony for the project's most critical component, the Love Canal, was held on May 23, 1894. After William T. Love threw back the first shovel of dirt, construction began in earnest, and in the coming months, crews of steam shovels and men with donkey carts had excavated a mile of the canal, spanning 80 feet in width and 15 feet deep. The local press, his backers, and Love himself were sure that everything was going to shake out just fine. Unfortunately, Due to a confluence of events, Model City was dead before it ever really got off the ground. It turned out that building Utopia was expensive. Digging the canal, paving roads, building houses, laying out sewers and water supplies, and stringing telephone lines cost money, and Love was plagued with funding problems from the very beginning. The panics of 1893 and 1896 made it much harder to secure investment, as the holders of capital began to look for more stable returns over speculative city building. To make matters worse, in 1895, Westinghouse Electric, in cooperation with Nikola Tesla, built a major hydroelectric generating station at Niagara Falls one that produced alternating current, which could subsequently be sent over long distances, removing the previous need for industry to be built close to a generation source, which was, of course, the entire thrust of Model City's value proposition. By August 1896, Love had reached the end of the line, and with only a mile of canal dug, some streets laid out, and a handful of houses built, his creditors seized anything of value the company had in order to repay its debts. Love left his failed city and lived a quiet life, managing a gold mine in rural Ontario, before relocating to the American East Coast sometime in the 1920s and dying in 1931. After Love's flight from the falls, there were a number of abortive attempts to revive the Love Canal scheme, if not with the accompanying city, then just the hydroelectric canal, but nothing ever materialized. The final blow came in 1909, when the United States and Canada signed the International Boundary Water Treaty, which prevented any party from diverting additional water flow away from Niagara Falls. The Love Canal became a big, water-filled ditch. In the early years, it was used by the city to aid in the irrigation of nearby farms. In the summers, local children swam in it, and in the winter, it made the perfect ice rink. The canal's history as a dump begins in the 1920s, when the city of Niagara Falls began using it for the disposal of household trash, things that were mostly harmless, like glass bottles and paper waste. Unfortunately, that would soon change. From the late 1930s into the early 1950s, the field of industrial chemistry underwent a revolution that brought things like synthetic rubber, plastics, and advanced herbicides and pesticides. And so it was that in 1942, the Hooker Electrochemical Company, a manufacturer of all the aforementioned chemical products as well as things like asbestos, set up shop in Niagara Falls, 
purchasing the old love canal and draining it for use as a toxic waste dump. Hooker began packing its waste into 55-gallon drums and burying it in the canal bed. Once a section of the canal was filled, they would cover it over with a clay top, which was supposed to prevent seepage, and then cover the clay with dirt. Eventually, after 10 years of uninterrupted dumping, the Love Canal would come to hold 20,000 tons of toxic waste, including radioactive waste that was a byproduct of the Manhattan Project. At the same time that lethal chemicals were accumulating underground, Niagara Falls was a city on the grow. Between 1940 and 1960, its population would increase over 30%. This fact, combined with the suburbanization push of mid-century America, meant that Niagara Falls was looking for space to build some new single-family housing. Lucky for them, there seemed to be a mile-long patch of empty grass just sitting there, completely unused. In 1951, construction began on homes in the areas surrounding the canal, and by 1953, the city was eyeing the canal itself. Hooker, recognizing that the city aimed to develop the dump, stopped adding toxic waste to the site that year. The company was initially reluctant to sell the land to the city, drafting up a proposal wherein the land could only be used as a public park and not be the site of any residential development. Niagara Falls rejected the proposal, and as it became increasingly clear that the city was going to take the land through condemnation anyway, Hooker agreed to sell the site for $1 and included in the contract a lengthy disclaimer outlining the many dangers buried in the Love Canal. A new elementary school, the 99th Street School, was going to be built on the canal site, and construction began a year later in 1954. Over the course of construction, workers encountered sinkholes, chemical seepage, fumes, and exposed waste barrels. In response, you'll never guess what they do, they moved the school to a safe new location, still on the canal path, only 85 feet away. After the completion of the 99th Street School in 1954, construction began on another school on top of the site a few blocks away, the 93rd Street School. By 1958, the city had continued residential construction across the site, piercing a number of holes in the clay cap in order to lay sewer and water lines. A few years later, in 1962, the city sold the development rights to a portion of the canal site to a private company, giving them no warning of the deadly chemicals just a few feet below ground. By the early 1970s, most of the new homes had been built, and it wasn't soon after that a few neighbors began noticing strange things happening around the neighborhood. Odd smells, unexplained, seemingly spontaneous fires, small pools of chemicals emerging from the earth. And then, from 1973 to 1976, three years of abnormally heavy rain combined with snowmelt turned up the heat on Love Canal, forcing deadly chemicals up out of the ground and into the neighborhood homes. 
The first article addressing the dangers in the community appeared in the Niagara Gazette in October 1976, which was read by a young mother and Love Canal resident named Lois Gibbs. Gibbs, in turn, made the connection between the chemicals and the sickness that gripped her kindergarten-aged son, Michael. Upon approaching the school board and demanding that her son be removed from the incredibly dangerous school, the board dismissed her as a hysterical housewife, saying that if they pulled out Michael Gibbs, they would have to do the same for every other child. So, instead of doing what is ostensibly their job, they decided to do nothing and force local children to continue to attend the 99th and 93rd Street schools. In response, Lois Gibbs began collecting informal data on the suffering caused by these chemicals and circulating a petition among the parents to shut down the school. I'll let her explain what came next. This audio comes from a 2013 episode of Living on Earth, which is linked in the episode notes and which I would highly recommend you listen to in its entirety. Well, then the state came in, the state of New York came in, did some testing, and they found the houses that had chemicals that were above a workplace standard. So that's for an adult male, 140 pounds, 40 hours a week. And based on that and based on some health studies they did, they determined that it was safer to move pregnant women and children under two. So this was August of 1978. And we were just stunned. You know, the, our children, our babies are canaries in the mind and to remove the canaries does not remove the poisoning and does not protect the children. So we became very angry because we realized if that's what they felt, then it had to be a whole lot worse. And so we began organizing and we got people involved and we did our own health study and it was amazing. We found 56% of our children were born with birth defects. 56% with three ears, double rows of teeth, extra fingers, extra toes, mentally retarded. It was just awful. House after house would just tell us these horrible diseases. And when we presented it to the state health department and said, look what we found, they said it was useless housewife data collected by people with a vested interest in the outcome. And I'm always amazed because now I've been doing this for 35 years that it wasn't, you know, when industry releases a report, you know, BP, Exxon, whatever industry, their reports are always scientifically valid and almost gospel, if you will. And ours is just useless housewife data with vested. How come they don't have a vested interest when their BP is looking at the oil spill? Nobody said anything like that to them. And so I got angry again because now it became a, a matter of life and death and principle. And so we forced them to do their own study, and guess what? They found exactly the same thing. In fact, the gentleman came up to me and said, you'll be so surprised, Lois. We found the same thing you found. It's like, well, what did you think? We were making it up? I mean, my goodness. And when they found that, then they agreed to move entire families in the first two rows of homes. That's 239 families. And pregnant women and children under two in the outer community. So, writing off this, quote-unquote, new information, in the summer of 1978, the state of New York began running blood tests on the residents in order to determine what kinds of abnormalities these chemicals had caused. 
This initial round of tests would reveal significant incidents of liver damage, and successive tests over the coming two years would show that Love Canal residents had suffered damage to their nervous systems and their chromosomes. This, I imagine, would be as good a time as any to talk about just what kinds of chemicals exactly were leaking from the site. A 1978 study identified at least 81 unique chemicals, 11 of which were known carcinogens. These include 2,4,6-dichlorophenol, known as TCP, a constituent part of dioxin, widely recognized as the most deadly chemical ever produced by humankind. Hooker dumped a recorded 200 tons of TCP waste in Love Canal, enough to produce over several hundred pounds of dioxin, or, if you prefer, approximately enough to kill the entire eastern seaboard. The levels of dioxin found inside Love Canal homes were over 100,000 times greater than the levels known to be lethal in lab animals. The dump also contained toluene and lindane, which cause cancer and high white blood cell count, a precursor to leukemia. There was carbon tetrachloride, which causes liver cancer, and methylene chloride, which causes lung cancer. There was benzene, polychlorinated biphenyls, and a host of other chemicals that all cause rare cancers, as well as birth defects and miscarriages. In 1979, of the eight children born to Love Canal families, only two were healthy and normal. The complete lack of appropriate action on the part of the city, state, and federal government prompted intense outrage among the Love Canal families, who organized into the Love Canal Homeowners Association, led by Lois Gibbs, in 1978. From the very beginning, all the way back to the 1950s when the city knowingly built on top of the site, it was apparent that the government really did not care about the health of the people. And so really every victory for the residents was a direct result of this intense organizing by the homeowners association. Every step of the way, they faced incredibly fierce resistance to fielding any kind of appropriate response to the disaster. And this is no better exemplified in the staggered way that the evacuation of Love Canal occurred. First, as you may remember, the state said that there was nothing wrong with Love Canal and that they were just a bunch of airheaded housewives. Well, those housewives organized, and because of that pressure, New York announced the evacuation of the first two rings of houses that immediately bordered the canal. That of course, was a half-assed solution, as those living outside the two rows of homes, in some cases directly across the street from the hazard zone, were told that they were perfectly safe on one side of the street while in mortal danger on the other. They were perfectly safe, oh, but also don't go in your basement, don't go in your yard, don't eat any fruit or vegetable that you grew, and don't disturb the soil on your property. But you're perfectly safe, I promise. 
In October 1978, the state then began remediation efforts on the site, bringing in construction equipment to tear apart the earth and release noxious chemical fumes before the rest of the residents were evacuated, prompting fierce protests from the Homeowners Association, wherein a number of protesters, including Lois Gibbs, were arrested. In response to the continued pressure, undeniable scale of the disaster and public outrage. A year later, in October 1979, Governor Hugh Carey extended the evacuation zone to a 10-block radius around the site, which still excluded some 200 impacted families. The boiling point came in May 1980 when two EPA officials arrived at Love Canal to inform the residents about their chromosome and nervous system damage. In response, the furious residents of Love Canal figured that if, according to the government, their houses were so safe to live in, then these two EPA officials would live in one until they got their evacuation. Accordingly, 500 people surrounded the house and forced the men to stay inside. What could be called a standoff lasted five hours and ended after the FBI threatened to descend on the community and forcibly remove the two men. Though it only lasted an afternoon, the gambit worked, and three days later, on May 22, 1980, Jimmy Carter declared a second official state of emergency on Love Canal the precursor for the October 1980 signing of the appropriations bill that would buy out all 710 families impacted by the disaster. That same year, Carter signed the Superfund Act, giving the EPA $1.6 billion to identify and clean up toxic spills. The cleanup at Love Canal would last throughout the 1980s, resulting in the leveling of hundreds of homes deemed unsafe for habitation. Or rather, I should use the word cleanup lightly, as the EPA actually did nothing to remove the waste. What they did was beef up and reinforce the existing systems that had held the dump in place, putting on a new clay cap, this time with a layer of plastic, digging groundwater sumps, and a number of testing wells. In 1983, Occidental Petroleum, which had bought Hooker Electrochemical in 1968, settled a suit brought by the residents of Love Canal, paying a lump sum of $20 million, or an average payment of just over 14000 in 1996, the city of Niagara Falls began to redevelop the abandoned areas after 15 years, rebranding the areas directly to the west and north of the toxic dump as Black Creek Village. Owing to the rules of the Superfund legislation, Occidental Petroleum is responsible for the ongoing maintenance and monitoring of the Love Canal site, which they do through a subsidiary called Glen Springs Holdings. Through the mouth of Glen Springs, Occidental maintains that everything in Love Canal, or should I say, Black Creek Village, is completely safe. Ground and air samples, of course, haven't been taken since the early 1990s, but still, Mike Basile, a spokesperson for the EPA who's involved in the monitoring of the site, says, quote, it is probably the safest place on earth. 
current residents aren't so sure. Rare blood diseases, cancers, nerve damage, rashes, strange cysts, and miscarriages remain unsettlingly common among the inhabitants of Black Creek Village. The EPA has refused to take new soil and air tests, insisting that the monitoring wells are all we need to know that the site is safe. Reality paints a different picture, with tests paid for by the residents showing that the contamination from Love Canal has seeped into the soil. In 2011, during excavation for a new sewer project, crews uncovered a pocket of previously unknown Love Canal waste, causing it to back up into a number of basements in the area, leaving the walls coated with toxic residue. But worry not, they proceeded to wash most of it away with a high-powered hose, sending it down the street and into storm drains and front yards. The question remains, though, even if this waste was not a leak from the canal, which both the EPA and Occidental Petroleum hotly deny, then what's to say that there aren't any number of other caches of toxins just waiting to be unearthed by a construction crew or a rising water table or erosion? After all, 20,000 tons of the most deadly stuff on Earth is still just sitting there, underground, a few hundred feet away from where people sleep. Sometime in the past few years, even the warning signs have been removed from the fence surrounding the site, meaning that conceivably a young new family could be completely ignorant of the fact that they're making their happy home only a stone's throw away from the gates of hell. Now instead signs simply say, private property. After a trip back to her former home, Lois Gibbs said, it's like a gated community for chemicals. That, I think, just about does it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and maybe learned a thing or two. If you did, then I would really appreciate it if you subscribed or shared the show with a friend. Thanks for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History. Signing off.